Thank you, worship team, Pastor Roger, for leading us in communion and worship this morning through song. Uh, it was an encouragement to draw near and to remember the great salvation that we have in Jesus Christ. I want to warmly welcome all of you to our first service, and especially, again, uh, a warm welcome to all our guests um, that are joining us today. Glad to have you with us. We especially welcome you as uh, brothers and sisters in Christ, and uh, as you, we hope that uh, today, uh, as you worship with us, that you may f- come to grow in appreciation for the family of God that he has all around the world. If uh, <clears throat> you have your Bibles, please take them and turn with me to the book of Isaiah this morning. The book of Isaiah. It's been a while since we've been here. I think the last time I was in Isaiah was in January. So we come back to Isaiah this morning. And we're going to look just uh, for the scripture reading this morning that I'd like to read is from Isaiah chapter 1, verse 1 to 4. Uh, we're going to do in uh, your notes say a review. Uh, I'm actually changed the title to an overview. That's you know, words, words. But Isaiah 1 to 66, I've decided instead of preaching 57 chapters, I'm going to preach 66 of them instead. So uh, let's read verses 1 to 4, chapter 1 of Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 1, verse 1 to 4. The vision of Isaiah, the son of Amos, concerning Judah and Jerusalem, which he saw during the reigns of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. Listen, O heavens, and hear, O earth, for the Lord speaks. Sons I have reared and brought up, but they have revolted against me. An ox knows its owner, and a donkey its master's manger, but Israel does not know. My people do not understand. Alas, sinful nation, people weighed down with iniquity, offspring of evildoers, sons who act corruptly, they have abandoned the Lord. They have despised the Holy One of Israel. They have turned away from him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this book of Isaiah. Uh, this uh, all-important, critical book in the Old Testament that describes for us prophecies of the salvation, your great salvation, that it will come through your Son, our Messiah. We thank you, Lord, that we can open up this book once again. And as we approach the, the final section of this uh, great book, may you prepare our hearts to study it. Give us a renewed appreciation for what we're going to be learning in these next nine chapters. We pray that your spirit would be our teacher this morning, even as we review and uh, look at, at this book from a, a broad uh, uh, overview. We pray that it would be edifying and encouraging to all of us. We thank you for your word, Lord. Your, we know that your word is truth. We pray that as it is preached this morning, may you use it to sanctify us in your truth. Father, we pray you be glorified through this church and through the ministry of this church as we worship you and as we tell others about this great salvation that is found through Jesus Christ. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Amen. It's easy sometimes to take our salvation for granted, isn't it? It's kind of like when you get a gift, you know, it's like if I gave you a gift and uh, and then you say, wow, P.H., you've never given me a gift before. It's wonderful. I'm so thankful for this gift. I said, well, oh, good. yeah, I'm, I'm glad you like the gift. Open it, please. And then so you open it up and you're like, oh, man, 
It's an all-expense ticket to the place I've always been wanting to go to. And you fill in the blank, you know, whether it's Disneyland, San Francisco, Tampa, Florida, wherever it is, okay? You just need to fill in the blank. It's an all-expense ticket. I can fly there with my loved one and go there. Wow, thank you, PH. You are so generous. Oh, I love you, okay? And then so you got the ticket. But then, you know, oftentimes, imagine what would happen if, like, a year later, I say, oh, you know, and you say, oh, I still got the ticket, but it's, oh, where did I put that ticket? Oh, man, I, you know, I don't remember. And then, I mean, a couple of years later, I said, oh, hey, did, did you go yet? No, 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 I didn't go yet. Oh, but uh, the ticket's still, still right here. And maybe after a while, you say, oh, oh, I go, hey, did you go yet? Oh, what ticket? You know, of course, that'd be really silly because you'd probably go right away. You'd want to go right away. Um, and that's sometimes what I feel like is when it comes to our salvation, you know, we're excited about when we receive that gift. We find hear about the gift of salvation first. First, we're excited that news God brings us to repentance and faith, and we receive that gift. And we open it up. We realize that it's it's a relationship with Jesus Christ. But it's more than just a relationship with Jesus Christ. It's a relationship with Jesus Christ that has a destination. It has a, a completion to it. It has a future to it. But as we live life, we get busy living life that we forget about the destination of this salvation that we have. We forget that it has an end, the completion. We take that all for granted. We know, well, I'm gonna, when I die, when I die, and it just seems like really far away, it's just something that's going to, I'm going to go to heaven. But that's then. You know, sometimes I think about that aspect of our salvation, our glorification, the future of our, uh, the future that will take place in our salvation, and we take it for granted. We don't think much about it. As we come to Isaiah chapter 58, verse 66, it describes for us, particularly for the nation Israel, their future salvation, their future salvation. Of course, uh, Israel was eager to say that they worship God. They would have all, at least outwardly, professed that. They would have believed that because of their special place in God's uh, plan that they were going to be saved. And maybe they even thought about the future, but they all, they did not really count it as being that valuable. In fact, we, as we've even read here, really they were a people, though outwardly the people of God, inwardly they were far from him. They were not worshipers of him. Chapters 58 to 66, as we're going to look at in the next three months, covers this future glory of the Lord's salvation. And I'm hoping that this morning, as we would do an overview of Isaiah, that it will prepare our hearts to grow in our appreciation for why chapters 58 to 66 are important for the nation Israel, but they're also important for you and me, who also have come to know this salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. If you recall, it was two years, nine months ago that we started our series in Isaiah. That's uh, so three years, around three years. Well, it finished around three, at a three-year mark. And... I was, gonna, I was thinking about it as I've come back to 58. I thought, wow, we've covered so much. I was wondering even if outside of Isaiah 53, can any of you quote even a single uh, theme or message or, or verse that you say, oh, I remember that truth that I learned from our series in Isaiah. Don't answer. It's okay. <laughs> I've even forgotten this at times. Okay. So this morning I want to just prepare us for this final series of messages from this glorious book. I'm going to, this message today is going to be a little more teaching than preaching. Uh, I'm trying to cover 66 chapters, so uh, hopefully it's uh, educational for you, instructive for you, but it it causes you to grow in your appreciation for this book, Uh, and I hope it will strengthen your faith. 
Now, a brief word as to the significance of Isaiah. Isaiah is significant for Christians today because its theme, the theme of salvation, that salvation is from the Lord, that this is the most quoted Old Testament prophecy in all New Testament, or prophet in all the New Testament. So when you read your New Testament, you're going to find quotes from Isaiah almost left and right. And as you, to help you understand your New Testament, it helps understand this book of Isaiah. It contributes significantly to all the many prophecies of Jesus Christ at his first coming as well as at his second coming. And the fulfillment of these prophecies affirms not only the truthfulness of Scripture on one hand, but it also strengthens our faith in the Lord of this, our salvation. So that's we're hopefully just a reminder of why this is significant for us. We're going to take a look at three views this morning, three-point outline. Uh, just a three-point outline. I'll call it the three views of Isaiah to increase our appreciation for the future glory of the Lord's salvation. So I think we're going to have to fly uh, through this. Let's take this overview flight of Isaiah. Let's look at view number one, a worldview, or the worldview of Isaiah. Now, when you hear this term worldview, you probably heard it, learned it in sociology class or social science class, but a worldview can be defined as a, simply a collection of beliefs about life and the universe that's held by an individual or a group. That there are certain beliefs about our, our lives, our world that we live in, that we hold together, if you're particularly as an individual or as a group. And the Bible, especially has informed us as Christians, gives us a biblical worldview. And in this first verse of chapter 1, verse 1, even a few verses after, it kind of reminds me and reminds us of some different aspects of our biblical worldview. Isaiah is defined as the vision of Isaiah, the son of Amos, concerning Judah and Jerusalem, which he saw during the reigns of those four kings. In the old, and the, so we learn in this verse, or remind in this verse, that the first aspect of a biblical worldview that we learn is this. That God exists, that God exists, and he reveals himself to mankind. God exists, and he reveals himself to mankind. This is the vision. In the, in the Bible, a vision is a revelation from God. It's a little, in contrast to dreams, which people are, are revelation, in the Old Testament, are revelations from God when people are sleeping. Visions oftentimes were revelations from God when a person was awake. The Hebrew word for vision is used some 35 times in the Old Testament, and each time it involves a supernatural insight, awareness, almost a, a sight of some revelation. Visions were given to guide and direct God's servants and to foretell the future. When we think of this, we're reminded of Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1, where God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets in many portions and in many ways, See, God in the Old Testament spoke to the people of God in a lot of different ways, in a lot of different, great, different lengths. In Isaiah, he spoke to him at a great length. That's why we have this single vision. It's not just visions, but a vision, a singular vision. It's a unified theme, a unified revelation that God gives to Isaiah about Israel's future. God would speak through those chosen people known as prophets, and Isaiah was such a prophet. The prophets of Isaiah are a revelation from God that gives to them their, their, his plan of salvation. 
These, uh, this vision is not uh, the creative imaginations of man. It's not Isaiah's own thoughts, but it's a direct revelation from God concerning their salvation that God reveals to them that would come through the promised Messiah. So that's the that's first biblical aspect of this worldview. And in keeping these, these aspects of worldview helps us in our interpretation and our uh, appreciation for uh, this book. The second aspect of a biblical worldview that we find in this verse, verse 1, is that God's plans for salvation are centered on the chosen nation of Israel. We have this understanding that God's plans are, are centered. It, it uh, begins and, and it will end with this nation of Israel that he's called. We read that Isaiah's vision concerns Judah and Jerusalem. God, those are, that's the nation of Judah. The, the, even in the divided kingdom, Judah was the, the chosen nation the nation that God will preserve uh, for David and Solomon's descendants. Jerusalem would be its capital. God had chosen Abraham, if you recall, way back in Genesis chapter 12, verse 2, 1 and 3. And God had chosen Abraham and his seed through whom God would bless all the families of the earth. Just throw the verse up there for you. He would, God would, reiterate that promise of a blessing and through them of blessings upon the nations of the earth to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob in the book of Genesis. Jacob would later be named Israel, and his 12 sons would form the tribes, the 12 tribes of Israel. And though in Israel's history the nation would become divided, God would always preserve a faithful remnant of these Israelites, a few of these Israelites who would believe and trust in the Lord. In contrast to the northern kingdom, Judah continued to worship God, at least outwardly. Of course, in Jerusalem was the temple, and so that was a big part of their worship. They continued to observe all the religious feasts and the holy days and the fasts. But for much of, even for much of Judah, they were far from him. And we learn, and as we think about this chosen nation of Israel, we remember that God's promises to his chosen nation are irrevocable. That God's plan of salvation was revealed to Israel, fulfilled through Israel, that is, particularly through the Messiah, who was a Jewish man, Jesus of Nazareth, and will be completed in the end in Israel. See, God's promise that he makes the nation to Abraham his descendants to Israel are going to be kept. They're not changed or transformed, but they're going to be kept. God does not forsake them. And as we study Isaiah, it helps us remember these words. That these words, when we look at the books, when God says, you are my people, he's, uh, we quick, are quick to jump to ourselves. But as we've been studying, we, we try to emphasize, what is he saying to the nation of Israel? Because that's who he's speaking to first and foremost. And, all, and although many of the principles can apply to the church today, not every promise in this vision does. And we'll just kind of see that in our interpretations of some of these future uh, events that are going to be described in Isaiah 58 to 66. There's a third aspect of a biblical worldview that we learn, and that is that the Lord alone saves. We believe that the, the Bible gives us this understanding that God alone saves. He alone is God. He alone saves. No one else can be looked to for salvation because all of us, all mankind, anyone else you think you may turn to needs salvation. We are all sinners, from the commoner on the street to the king on the throne. They stand, we stand in stark contrast to the, the perfect and sinless ruler 
that God would send to save us. We're reminded of this, even the New Testament, Romans 3, 23, 24, about how all of us sin, all of us fall short. There's no one whom, <coughs> whom, among men that we could look to for salvation. For God has saved us, justified us as a gift by his grace through one, through the redemption, the act of redeeming us that was accomplished through Jesus Christ on the cross. Isaiah's ministry, and here's a little bit of kind of, I want to give us a little refresher, spanned the history of four Judean kings, Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah. After King Solomon died in 931 B.C., the nation Israel was divided into two kingdoms, remember? The northern kingdom was called Israel. Its capital was Samaria. The southern kingdom was called Judah with its capital in Jerusalem. These four kings reigned over the southern kingdom. And though the Bible would call three of these four kings as being good kings, Ahaz is the only evil king, we would learn in the Kings and Chronicles that these men, though good, were sinners themselves. First was Uzziah. Uzziah was seven, lived, reigned through 790 to 739 B.C. He was also known as Azariah, and he was one of those good kings. And God, through him, prospered the nation of Israel, remember. Yet, despite all his success, Uzziah failed in one main area. He failed to lead the nation to worship God. That is, the nation, as a, as a general practice, were still worshiping many pagan gods in high places. These places outside of Jerusalem, on these, the mountains of Jerusalem, where people would go and then worship the idols of the surrounding nations. But Uzziah failed to remove those idols. He sinned in that way. Second was Uzziah's son, Jotham. Jotham was reigned 739, 731. His reign was similar to his father's as well, and he also was called a good king. He ordered his ways before the Lord his God. Yet Jotham, too, did not remove the high places. He did not lead the people to worship God. The people continued acting corruptly by sacrificing and burning incense to idols. Third was Joahaz. Joahaz was, uh, or, I'm sorry, Ahaz, Jotham's son. And he of these four kings uh, was an evil king. He didn't even uh, fake a worshiping God. He was uh, one who worshiped the pagan gods of, uh, of the surrounding nations. He didn't do what was right in the sight of the Lord. He sacrificed. He burned incense on all the high places just like the people of Israel did. He burned his sons even more uh, in fire as an act of that idol worship. The fourth king probably is the best of all all four, King Hezekiah, Ahaz's son, 715 to 686. And despite having such an evil father, Hezekiah was a good king. He actually did what all the other kings before him did fail to do. He removed those high places. He created a lot of reforms, uh, spiritual reform. He got rid of the idols, and he trusted in the Lord and kept God's commandments. And the Lord was with them, and Hezekiah's reign prospered. And though he ruled well for most of his reign, he did not end very well, as you recall. Hezekiah, as we read in uh, Isaiah, had a prideful heart. And in boastfulness, he, he showed off, basically, the treasuries of Judah to the Babylonian king, or the Babylonian envoy. And uh, there was an appropriate uh, penalty for that. So these were the kings. These are people that in those days, look, the people of God looked to. The kings, especially for the nation Israel, were their representatives, divine representatives. 
God, people whom God established over them that would rule over them in place of or in the stead of God's immediate reign. And the people looked to these leaders, they looked to them, and some of them did well. They were, some of them were good in general, but yet they did not always follow them. And sometimes the kings were completely wicked, and the people just followed them into their wickedness. No matter who was king in those days, no matter which king of Israel and Judah reigned, all were sinners. All fell short of the glory of God. All needed salvation. It kind of <coughs> reminds me of our, <laughs> of our days in our political worlds, especially here in San Francisco. We, we look to our rulers to solve everything for us. We look to them for almost, in a sense, salvation. We look to them to solve our problems. But there's, when we think about our rulers, we must remember that they are, they are all sinners, too. They all fall short. Don't be disappointed when your rulers sin, when they fall short of, of God's holy standards, when they disappoint you, when they, uh, when they uh, are, um, even not only fail in their task, but morally uh, commit sins that are contrary to God's commands. The imperfect rulers of our day remind us, just as it did for Israel's days, that there is one who saves. There was one king who saves, one king who we should look to, and that's the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the king that's promised throughout Isaiah that would come, and he will come, and he will save. He will reign. He'll be the, uh, the king of kings. He'll be the one who sits on a throne. He's going to be one who establishes justice and peace throughout our world, and that king, of course, is Jesus Christ, the perfect prince of peace. Well, that's our overview, or that's the worldview of Isaiah, and just a couple aspects of the worldview. And the second view I want to take is the review of Isaiah 1 to 57. It's kind of where we've been. Where have we been from these 57 chapters? As you know, Isaiah has the theme of salvation. Uh, this word salvation would appear some 26 times in, in Isaiah alone, and significant because only seven times in all the other prophets combined does this word appear. So Isaiah is clearly about the salvation of the Lord. Isaiah's name, of course, itself means the Lord is salvation. It is often said that Isaiah is like a mini Bible, and that's true. Just look at this outline. You think about the first 39 chapters of Isaiah describes our need for salvation, like even the Old Testament, describing <coughs> the wrath of God upon sin. We see time and time again how Israel's sins fall short and God judges the nation. In chapters 40 to 66, much like the, the last 27 books of the, of the Bible, the New Testament, we call it, is focused on God's provision of salvation, the comfort, the consolation, the, the, the peace that's going to come through God's provision of salvation, that is, through Jesus Christ. Uh, just as a review, then, let's just kind of fly through this where we've been. It is in chapters 1 to 5 of Isaiah, if you recall, some two and a half years ago, God, we saw the introduction, the overview to the whole book. The first five chapters of Isaiah are an overview. Every theme that's found in Isaiah, every major theme found in Isaiah is reviewed for us in chapters 1 to 5. God rebukes Judah for her rebellious sin and her hypocrisy. He condemned them because their leaders were corrupt. They were void of justice. They were void of righteousness. God warns them and his people of the judgment to come. And then interspersed in all the prophecy of judgment are God's promises of hope. 
there was going to be a promise of hope of a, that God would preserve for Israel a faithful remnant, but he would also promise them a glorious future because of a coming Messiah, also known as the branch of the Lord. We saw that in chapter 4, verse 2. And so chapter 1 to 5 is the overview, introduction. Chapter 6 we see is Isaiah's commission, wherein God calls Isaiah in that great scene where holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. God calls Isaiah to a prophetic ministry and sanctifies him with that, remember that burning coal that he touches his lip because Isaiah realized he's a, he's a sinner. But even in Isaiah chapter 6, we learn that Isaiah's ministry would be one of prophecy of the word of God, but it would go largely unheeded by the people of Israel. Chapter 7 to 12 that we then looked at next challenged Judah to trust in the Lord. They were constantly being tempted to trust in the mightiest nation of that day, to trust in America, no wait, Assyria, and not in the Lord. But God calls them to, to make a choice, choose not Assyria, but the Lord. Chapter 7 is that key chapter, very significant because it gives, provides a historical background to our book. You remember chapter 7 where King Ahaz is, is reigning. And in those days, the, the northern kingdom, along with the nation of Syria, Aram in those days, came to wage war against Judah. But Ahaz didn't trust God to deliver them, though God had promised that. And in fact, he refused God's offer of a sign. And there in Isaiah 7, God says, well, I'm going to give you a sign nevertheless. And that's the sign of the virgin birth, Emmanuel's birth. Ahaz, of course, in sin, would turn instead to the king of Assyria. He did not trust in God. And so God promised Ahaz and Israel and Judah that he would use Assyria to judge Judah. In fact, that's what we'll... That, and that threat of Assyrian conquest of Judah uh, would shadow this next, uh, the rest of that first part of Isaiah. In chapters 13 and 35, we see basically God then is writing to these Israelites under the threat of Assyrian attack. And he describes really God's sovereignty over all the nations. Israel is constantly looking to the nations. There is sort of always going back and forth between Assyria and Egypt and looking for the, whichever is mightier for their deliverance, for their protection. Chapters 13 to 23 uh, describe God's judgment of those nations. Remember those wonderful sermons where all the nations were judged? I know you had a favorite one. Um, um, and, but it's not just all the surrounding nations that God would, would judge, but God's judgment would extend to the, the whole earth in chapters 24 to 25. Israel would, of course, return to the Lord, chapters 26 to 27, but not before God's judgment upon her, those six woes that we saw in chapters 28 to 33. But those who would trust in him, God promised a day of vengeance upon the enemies of God in chapters 34, and a day of salvation for the people of God, chapter 35. So we say God's sovereignty over the nations. And then at the end of the first part of, uh, of Isaiah, chapters 36 to 39, is that narrative, a sort of a historical transition between the first half of Isaiah to the second half. It gives us, again, a historical record, a historical transaction of, of all that took place. That's when we see the, uh, the threat of Assyria come to the forefront where King Sennacherib of Assyria uh, basically ravishes all of Judah, conquers all the fortified cities, and basically lays siege upon Jerusalem. Jerusalem's about to fall. We see King Hezekiah respond 
and trust and faith in God. And 36, 37, how God then mightily delivers Israel from the Syrian attack. In chapters 38, 39, we read about how Hezekiah fails even after that. Uh, in light of that, at another point in his life, failed to trust God. And chapters 38, 39, he, he shows the treasures of the, of the temple to uh, the Babylonian uh, envoy. And God then, through Isaiah, prophesies that one day, all these treasures, all of Israel, all of Judah, will be taken into captivity. Isaiah 39, 6 says, Behold, the days are coming when all that is in your house and all that your fathers have laid up in store to this day will be carried to Babylon. Nothing will be left. And it's that Babylonian captivity that would then kind of overshadow the rest of Isaiah 40 to 66. Isaiah 40 to 66 is written from that point of view. It's written from the point of view not of looking forward to the Babylonian captivity, but actually being in Babylonian captivity. God is writing these words to those who were captive, would be captive in those days. But God's word in Isaiah 40 begins with this promise. Comfort, oh comfort my people, says your God. See, even though Babylonian captivity, uh, they're being enslaved, God says, I give you comfort. I give you, a, I console you. I give you hope. I give you salvation and deliverance. For God would one day deliver Israel from captivity and return them to the promised land. God's comfort would come through the promise of salvation from sin through his servant. And then this promise of comfort would be divided, uh, these 27 chapters, into evenly three sections of nine chapters each. We learned in chapters 40 to 48 that God's comfort would come from the promise of deliverance from Babylonian captivity. Chapter 45 is that key uh, prophetic chapter, and it's real significant because there, even before the Babylonian captivity, some 150 years even before Cyrus ever lived on the earth, God promised that there would be his servant named Cyrus, the Persian king Cyrus, who would be instrumental in Israel's release from captivity. But God's comfort would come also not just from a, the physical, earthly deliverance from Babylonian captivity, but there would be a spiritual deliverance, a deliverance from captivity to sin, and that would become through the promise of deliverer to save from sin. The heart of this section, of course, as we read in our communion, was Isaiah 53, the most explicit prophecy of Christ's ministry in the Old Testament. But it was not the very first time, as you remember. We've already pointed out throughout our time and study of Isaiah all the many prophecies of Messiah, of this coming servant of the Lord who would serve God and bring salvation not only to Israel, but to all the nations of the earth. We learned of his birth in Isaiah 7.14. We learned of his deity in Isaiah 9.6. We learned of his ancestry in Isaiah 11.1, that he would be a descendant of, of, Des, of Jesse. <clears throat> well, we learned of, of his birth, uh, of, his, or of his foundational role in God's salvation, that how critical in, in Isaiah 28, 16, of how he would be that choice cornerstone that would be a part of the foundation. We also learned of uh, his forerunner, John the Baptist, in Isaiah 43, of his spirit-empowered ministry in Isaiah 42, 1, 
and then of his death, burial, substitutionary atonement uh, for sins. And even, I might add, his resurrection is found in Isaiah 52 uh, through 53. Isaiah is so rich with the truths about Christ and the salvation that he brings to our world that sometimes this book is called the fifth gospel. If you want to see Christ and you only have your Old Testament, you turn to Isaiah 53 and you read it. If, you're, if you know anything about Jesus, you will see that it just matches in Jesus' life to a T. Through faith in Christ, God's people will know the salvation that he promises in this book. We've looked at this. We've seen this. We've seen God's judgment upon Israel, God's warning to Israel, uh, to Judah particularly, to turn, to turn away from the nations and turn to him for the salvation, to look for the salvation that he would give them through his son. But for those who would not turn from sin, who would not believe in him, at the end of each of those uh, first two sections, at the end of chapter 48 and end of chapter 57, is that same warning to all who refuse to submit and trust in the Lord. That phrase, there is no peace. There is no peace. For the wicked. As we look to our third and final view, I want to give us a preview of Isaiah 58 to 66. Where are we going to go? What are we going to find in this final section of Isaiah? Considering the theme is salvation, we can then expect to find a focus on the, the future salvation that awaits Israel and the nations at the return of the Messiah. Uh, we've already looked at how God's comfort comes through deliverance from Babylonian captivity through the promise to deliver to save sin. In 58 to 66, this, these last nine chapters, we're going to see that God's comfort comes through the promise of the deliverer to judge the world. Now, yes, he will come and save his faithful Israel, but he will also come to judge the world. And that brings comfort to a nation that's surrounded by its enemies, to Israel. Now, when we talk about this, the first coming in 49.57, the second coming in 58.66, one might ask, how do we know that there's a first and second coming? If you've been in the church long enough, you've kind of heard and you've heard enough messages, then you probably come to understand this. But maybe you're sitting here, you've never heard of this idea. Maybe you think that's just the only one coming of Christ or, or two or three. How do we know there's not four or five? Well, first of all, it's because of the prophecies of the Messiah that we find in, in the Old Testament and how they are fulfilled. We find that the prophecies of the Messiah and his salvation have not all been fulfilled yet for Israel. There are some that we do find, like when we read Isaiah 53, that are fulfilled at Christ's first coming. But there are some and many, numerous of the prophecies, of the prophecies and promises of God to the nation Israel that are not fulfilled, like these promises of the day of judgment, a day of vengeance upon the wicked, those who would not turn to him. In fact, we see this, uh, and, and so we must understand, believe that those are yet to be fulfilled, and since they are associated with this coming of this Messiah, that, there is, that this Messiah is going to come again to fulfill those promises. In fact, we, we don't just come to this conclusion, but we see that Jesus makes this, uh, this illusion or this, uh, this awareness known even in the New Testament. In Isaiah 61, verse 1 to 2, we're going to look at this important verse where it says, The Spirit of the Lord of God is upon me. It's a description of the Messiah. 
He's speaking here. Because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the afflicted. He has sent me to build up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to captives and freedoms to prisoners, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn. If you are, just read this you would have, and you know your New Testament, you know, well, didn't Jesus read that somewhere? Yes, he did. He read it, we find the record in Luke 4, 18 to 21. Jesus, he went to the synagogue. He was given the scripture, the scroll of Isaiah. He opened it up to this particular place in the scroll. And he read this, Isaiah 61, verse 1 and verse 2. But he only read the first half of verse 2. He only read right up to, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. He ended right there. And even in these, would then say, today the scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Notice he knew that when he came at the first coming, he had come to announce that the, the good news of salvation that he was bringing to, to the broken heart and to the people of Israel. But he knew that he was not coming to bring or proclaim the day of vengeance of our God. Even for Jesus, he knew that the day of vengeance was still far ahead at his second coming. The key term, as we move on, there's a key term in Isaiah 58 to 66, and that is God's glory. This word glory we'll find in its various forms some 20 times in these last eight chapters. At the second coming of Jesus, we're going to see the glory of the Lord, the glory of God revealed. <clears throat> and by the way, uh, the 20 times in, found in the last eight chapters is about a, is a third of all its appearances in the rest of Isaiah. So we see this emphasis on the glory of the Lord. There is a future glory that will be revealed at the second coming of the Lord when he comes to bring salvation to its completion. We see this emphasis on glory in passages like Isaiah 60, 1 and 2. Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. For behold, darkness will cover the earth, and deep darkness the people's. But the Lord will rise upon you, and his glory will appear upon you. At some future time, there's going to be darkness everywhere else around the world. Think about the day of judgment that's coming. But when the Lord, as he rises in, in Jerusalem, when he appears in, in, in Israel, his glory will shine brightly there. The light will shine brightly because he will come and reveal the glory of God. We see this emphasis on glory in Isaiah 66, the last chapter of Isaiah, verse 18 and 19. For I know their works and their thoughts. The time is coming to gather all nations and tongues. They shall, all, they shall come and see my glory. See, salvation, glory is going to be not just for Israel, but it's, it goes to the nations reminded again. I will set a sign among them and will send survivors from them to the nations, Tarshish, Put, Lud, Meshach, Tubal, and Javan to distant coastlands that have neither heard my fame nor seen my glory, and they will declare my glory among the nations. In the future, God's glory is going to be revealed, and they're going to see God's glory. It goes all the way back to John chapter 1. And the word was with God, and the word was God, right? And the word became flesh, and we beheld his glory. When Jesus walked on earth, we beheld the glory of God. When Jesus walks again on earth, we're going to see the glory of God in the flesh with our eyes. 
And everyone's, this glory is going to be declared. Everyone's going to know that he has arrived. And everyone's going to tell each other, go to Jerusalem, go to Judah, because that is where you can see the glory of God. This glory that's going to be revealed at the Messiah's second coming will result in salvation for those who trust him. But just like Jesus' first coming, there will be some who reject him, even though they see him. And for those who reject him, there will be a future judgment. Remember, there is no peace for the wicked. In this final third section of this latter half of Isaiah ends in very much the same way. Isaiah 6, 6, verse 24. Then they will go forth, that is, those who are redeemed of Israel, and look on the corpses of the men who have transgressed against me, for their worm will not die and their fire will not be quenched, and they will be an abhorrence to all mankind. That's the final verse in Isaiah. It is simply a restatement of, an elaboration of, that there is no peace for the wicked. Their corpses, their death, though they die, their worm will not die. You could say their souls will not die. The fire that burns their bodies in hell will not be quenched. When people look upon and see, they will be an abhorrence to our mankind. Jesus would quote this very verse in Mark 9:48 to describe the hell of fiery torment that awaits those who return. Do not turn from sin. And this is, and if this is the destiny that awaits all who reject him. If you're here and you do not, have not turned from sin and turned in faith to Jesus Christ who died in place of you, who took all your sins, if you have not trusted in in his provision of salvation, I plead with you today. Consider the great gift of Jesus Christ that God has freely offered to you. Open that gift that is given to you. Receive the gift of Jesus and receive the hope of forgiveness of sins and eternal life in the presence of God. And yes, deliverance from judgment. The return of the Messiah is going to bring God's plan of salvation to completion. When all the church and all Israel will be saved, and God's plans will not be thwarted. And we all know this ahead of time because of Isaiah. We've come to know the Messiah, have the opportunity to tell the world of this salvation of the Lord. In conclusion, just want to speak to all of us here who are believers in Jesus Christ. We who have this biblical worldview and understanding that God exists and revealed himself to us his plans to us, his plan of salvation to us. We understand that his plan to save Jews and Gentiles through the Messiah, that's a, that's a gospel that begins with Israel but extends to Gentiles, to the world. We who have this worldview understand that God alone saves. It's not that all the other religions can save too. None of those can save. Only faith in Christ saves. God's provision of salvation saves. And if this is our worldview, if this is your worldview, then what does that do in our life as we understand the gospel? 
It should do three things. First of all, it should constantly cause in us a thankful heart, where we give thanks to God for this salvation. But secondly, I, I think it motivates us to tell others of this salvation, to share with others. Just having read that final verse, that is the destiny of all our unsaved friends, family, neighbor, loved ones in our life. When we love them, we will tell them of this salvation that is provided. And then thirdly, let us never stop learning of this glorious salvation and our coming glorious king. Yes, our, our future salvation still awaits us. If I went back to our Disneyland, or not Disneyland, or your, your ticket to wherever your favorite place is, uh, I just revealed where my favorite place is. Oh, well. Uh, say, you know, wherever your favorite place is, and if you got the ticket to go there, what would you do? You wouldn't just put it in a drawer. Before you, you even go, you would start researching about, oh, man, this is how I got it how I can find all the, the which rides I got to ride, which food I need to eat, which, which different places I'm going to go to first so I can maximize my trip there. You, you're going to want to learn what's the, the best food, the best places to see, the best sights to see. Uh, Fisherman's Wharf, Golden Gate Bridge, if you haven't checked those out yet, if you're here visiting with us. You know, those are the, some of the highlights in San Francisco Bible Church also. You would check it all out because you want to go there. Our salvation is in Jesus Christ, and we possess it. We have all the, these blessings right now in Jesus Christ. But there is a greater future blessing that awaits us. And I hope that as we look to Isaiah 58, 66, we're going to study it, that it will cause us to appreciate more the, the future destiny that this salvation leads to, that's going to end in. Let's pray. Father, thank you for our word, uh, your word, uh, and thank you for reminding us again of the, the salvation that we have, that you have provided for us in Jesus Christ. Cause us to grow in appreciation for it, even as we've covered so many details, Lord, today. But help prepare us for the next last nine chapters, Isaiah. Cause us to appreciate and worship you and give you thanks and give us opportunities and boldness and courage and love to share this, this salvation with others that you, bring into our, that you have brought into our lives. We thank you for Jesus. We thank you for our salvation. We give you praise for your mercy your wonderful wisdom in this plan that you have revealed to us. Thank you, Lord, for not leaving us blind. Thank you for opening our eyes to the truth. Lord, cause us to live in light of these truths. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. God bless you. You're dismissed. Have a wonderful week. Uh, if you're sticking around, we're going to have Sunday School Hour on our uh, floor below us. And, uh, but I'll see you next time. God, you're dismissed.